Good afternoon. You can say that it just turned noon, so uh, glad you're here with us this afternoon on this Ash Wednesday. Also, happy Valentine's Day. It's a little unusual that uh, Ash Wednesday's on a Valentine's Day, but that's just the way it fell in the calendar this year. If you don't already have Valentine's Day evening plans, uh, we would love to invite you to join us for dinner this evening. Uh, it's an inexpensive dinner, but a delicious one, uh, as you can support our missions with Heart for Missions. Uh, we have a Heart for Missions dinner at 6 o'clock here in the Great Hall. We're going to have a lasagna from 575 Pizzeria. It is the best lasagna in town, I promise you. Uh, you won't want to miss that. And then afterwards, we're going to have dessert in the Fellowship Center as we, do, as we uh, participate in the not-so-newlywed game. Uh, my wife and I and a few others are going to be a part of that. So if you want some fun entertainment that's uh, not too expensive and can go to the Heart for Missions, can help support the missions of this church, we would love to have you uh, there this evening. Friends, in Christ, every year at the time of Easter, we celebrate our redemption to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lent, which this Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, is a time to prepare for this celebration and to renew our life in the Paschal mystery. We begin this holy season by acknowledging our need for repentance and for the mercy and forgiveness proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We begin our journey to Easter with the sign of ashes. This ancient sign speaks of the frailty and uncertainty of human life and marks the penitence of this community. Throughout the Old Testament, when people would repent, they would put on sackcloth and ashes. We're not gonna ask you to put on sackcloths, but we will have the ashes for you today. I invite you, therefore, in the name of Jesus to observe a holy Lent by self-examination and penitence, by prayer and fasting, by works of love, and by reading and meditating on the word of God as we look to Easter 40 days from now. Yes, I would invite you now, please, to stand and let the word of God call us to worship. Words that come from Psalm 51, the responsive reading that is in your bulletin this afternoon. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, on this Ash Wednesday, we're reminded of our sin, of our own mortality, but we're also reminded of your grace, that you took on flesh, that you died for us so that you might ultimately save us, that you conquered sin and death with your resurrection on the third day. As we begin to look to Easter on this season of Lent, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would guide us this afternoon, that everything we say and do might bring glory and honor to you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. Almighty and everlasting God, you love everything you have made, and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. I like it. We all love to read scripture here. It's all good. Let me read a section of scriptures, Matthew five seventeen. 
And we will read through 26. Hear God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. For you heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. You know, people who feel that they don't need to ask God for forgiveness, they need to read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you read the Sermon on the Mount, your eyes are opened. Now, I know that today it's not real popular to have the Ten Commandments in the public square, but most Americans are familiar with the Ten Commandments in some way. And as they look at the Ten Commandments, many Americans would look at that and say, well, I abide by most of these. I haven't committed uh, adultery. I haven't murdered anyone. I have never made a a graven image and bowed down to it, or, or, or so they think. But even the most religious among us, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, our eyes are opened that our sin is not just about what we do on the outside, but what's going on on the inside that ultimately can condemn us. As Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. If we're angry at someone, if we have said a harsh word to someone, if we've even said a harsh word about someone, we're liable for judgment. Jesus goes on to say, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Any man here ever done that? Don't need to raise your hand on that, but just know that the question has been asked. As you think about our culture and how sex is used to sell so many things, it's hard not to have a a lustful thought, is it not? Yes, Jesus makes it clear that we are all in need of God's forgiveness. We are all sinners. As Paul writes in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what should we do? As sinners, what should we do? Well, John, the beloved disciple, at least that's what he says about himself, right? (laughs) He's the one that Jesus loved the most. In 1 John, his first letter, chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, John, the beloved disciple, writes, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, instructs him to take care of his own mother. This disciple who wrote the Gospel of John is responsible for three letters in our New Testament. This apostle recognizes that he's a sinner, and if he needs to confess his sin, how much more must we need to confess our sins to Almighty God? Most scholars agree that the greatest prayer of confession in all the Bible is Psalm 51. As we begin a new sermon series on the prayers that guide us during this season of Lent, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 51 in your Red Pew Bible, Psalm 51. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired David to put pen to paper so that we might have a prayer that can guide us in our own prayers of confession to you. But we recognize that we're all sinners in need of your grace. So Lord, as we read your word, may you speak to us. May we hear from you. May our hearts be opened and transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Psalm 51. Listen to the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's a little more explicit than I would like to be. After he went into Bathsheba, but that's literally what the Hebrew says. The ESV, the New Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the Bible, they all translate this introductory phrase after he had gone into Bathsheba. I actually prefer the NIV translation. It's a little more PG. It says, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's what inspired this psalm, that adulterous affair. And doesn't that really say it all? King David, as you know, committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah, Uriah's wife. Of course, of course those of us who know the, the whole story know that the story of David's affair is an is as scandalous as anything you're going to find on a soap opera today. The story is told in uh, 2 Samuel at chapter 11 and, and uh, verses, uh, chapter 11 and chapter uh, 12. And if you want to read it later, you can. I'm going to give you kind of the highlights here. We were told that in the spring of the year, when the time when kings should go off to battle, King David stays home. He sends Joab and his army to do the fighting for him. Rather than doing what he should have been doing, he stays home in his palace. Isn't that what, the way it often is? Rather than doing what we should be doing, we get distracted, we get idle, and we find ourselves in sin. If we would focus on doing what we should be doing, then the the sins and the temptations of this world would be less attractive. Rather than doing what he should have been doing, King David stayed home in his palace and let his army do his fighting for him. Rather than leading by example and fighting with his men as he had done so many times before, While David is home one late afternoon, he notices Bathsheba on the top of a roof bathing, and she is quite beautiful. Now, if David had noticed her bathing and simply turned away and covered his eyes, there would be no more story to tell, but that's not what David does, is it? David sees Bathsheba. Bathsheba. He longs for Bathsheba. He sends for Bathsheba. He initially inquires about her to find out who is this woman, and 
Well, David's servant tells him, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam, one of David's greatest soldiers, and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David doesn't seem to care, does he? Now he sees Bathsheba, he wants Bathsheba, and so he sends for Bathsheba. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, we read this. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David took her. The Hebrew word for took her can also be translated as grasp or seize. He didn't simply ask for her to come. He took her. He seized her. He grabbed her and made her his own, as if she was his wife, but she's not. Yes, when David sees bathing Bathsheba, he lingers, he longs, and he takes what is not his. The epistle of James, the brother of Jesus, wisely tells us this about sin. Do not be deceived, my, or he tells us this in verses 14 to 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In this story, we know that ultimately this brings forth death for Uriah. David, in this one encounter, impregnates Bathsheba. She sends word to David, and so David comes up with a plan. I'm going to cover this all up. I'm going to get Uriah off the battlefield. He's going to sleep with his wife. Uriah will think that the child is his, and no one will be the wiser. But Uriah is such a faithful soldier that he says, I can't sleep with my wife while my fellow soldiers are out in the battlefield. No, I'm going to sleep outside. I'm not going to to uh, be with my wife tonight. Exasperated, King David decides to send Uriah back into the battlefield, but he tells his general Joab, put Uriah at the front lines and don't help him when the enemy comes so that ultimately Uriah will be killed in battle. Yes, this sin ultimately leads to the death of Uriah. And then David marries Bathsheba and he thinks that he's gotten away with it. But God, sees everything. God sees everything and then he sends the prophet Nathan. You know the story. Nathan gets the the fun assignment of telling David about his sin. We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 1 to 10. And the Lord sent to Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took, there's that Hebrew word again, he took, he took the poor man's lamb prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. If if this was too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Isn't that ironic? King David is so quick to pronounce judgment on this story about a a servant who, who has a master who takes his one ewe lamb. He's so quick to judge this other servant's sin until Nathan says, you are the man. Every time I hear that story and I read it, I feel like God's pointing at me. You are the man. Now, I've never murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. But as I read the Sermon on the Mount, I've had angry thoughts about people before. I've had impure thoughts. We're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty of straying from God's ways. After being convicted of his sin, King David says, I have sinned against the Lord. David is so convicted by Nathan's statement, so remorseful and humble that he writes Psalm 51, our text this morning, the great prayer of confession that should guide all of us as we confess our sins to God today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his Christian classic, I don't know if you've read this book, Life Together. It's kind of thin. It's very, very good. And we've got a copy of it in the library if you'd like to check it out. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in Life Together, he who is alone with this sin is utterly alone. He who is alone with this sin is utterly alone. Bonhoeffer goes on to write that the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown, it shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. Bonhoeffer makes a great case for our need to confess our sins. As we confess our sins to God, we experience his grace and we no longer have to hide in the dark. No, we can walk in the light knowing that we are forgiven. Notice in verse four of our text this afternoon, King David declares, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I've gotta be honest with you, I've always struggled with that verse because I know the story, right? Was it just against God that uh, King David sinned? What about Uriah? I'm pretty sure King David sinned against Uriah when he took Uriah's wife and then had Uriah murdered. How is it that King David can say that only against you, O God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? What about Uriah? Didn't David sin against Uriah? Well, if we take a close look at the entire Old Testament, we'll see that in the Old Testament, a sin against another person was viewed as a a sin against God. If we sin against another person, one of the precious members of creation, someone who's been created in the very image of God, then we sin against our creator, the maker of heaven and earth. We see this in Proverbs 14, verse 31, where King Solomon writes, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. If we insult a a poor person, we're insulting his maker, the the one who created him in in his very image. But when we care for the poor, when we lift up the poor, then we are honoring our maker. It's every time we say a harsh word to another person or we say a word of gossip against them, we hurt a precious member of God's creation. And we sin not only against that person, but ultimately our sin is against God, who is our judge, our ultimate judge. Yes, whenever we sin against a person, we sin against God, and he is our ultimate judge, the creator of heaven and earth. King David knows that his sin of adultery and murder are against Uriah, but he focuses on confessing his sin to the Lord because he knows that the Lord is his ultimate judge. As Old Testament scholar uh, Walter Brueggemann points out, the sin of that episode is not finally sexual violation against Bathsheba or murder against Uriah, but is the sin of pride against Yahweh, of imagining that one is autonomous and can live one's life without reference to Yahweh and Yahweh's commandments. The sin is thinking the commandments can somehow be superseded. David's sin is ultimately a sin of pride. He thinks that he's above the law of God and God has to send Nathan to let him know, no, I saw everything you did. Even though you're king, you're not above my commandments, says God. Yes, David knows that his sin of pride is ultimately against God. And so he says, against you, O Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice that in David's plea of forgiveness, in the very first verse of Psalm 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
King David pleads for mercy according to God's steadfast love. And we confess our sins to God. And as we come to this table, we're reminded that we have a God who loves us, who wants to forgive us. A God who loves us so much that even though we were sinners, he did not abandon us in our sin, but he sent his one and only son, born as a baby in a manger, who grew up among us, taught us, healed us, and ultimately died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Yes, Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. Then he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then on the third day, he conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could walk in a new life with him, so that we could have the assurance of eternal life. Yes, this table with the cross and the bread and the juice remind us of God's great love. Christ's body given for us. Christ's blood shed for us. No greater love is it than this, Jesus says, than a man who's willing to die for his friends. As we can come to God in confession, as David says, and, and appeal to his steadfast love, knowing just how much God loves us. And we come to God in prayer and humility, knowing that his King David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do we have a broken and contrite heart spirit before God today? Or in our pride, are we trying to hide our sins? Are we willing to come forward and come clean before God and say, Lord, please forgive me. Forgive me for the sins that I've committed and and, and my sins of omission when I I fail to do what I ought to do and, and when I rebelliously do the things I shouldn't do. Are we willing to come to God in confession today? Because confession, as Bonhoeffer points out and as John points out, it's good for our soul. It cleanses us. It strengthens our relationship with God. You know, on this Valentine's Day, I'm so grateful that I have an amazing wife and God has blessed our marriage and our union with three wonderful children who have great hearts. I I love each one of them. But they're just like you and me. They're sinners. In fact, we're born sinful, uh, as King David uh, points out in, in verse five of our text, you know, that we were born with a sinful nature, that we're sinners not because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. The doctrine of original sin that we understand from scripture explains that because of Adam and Eve, our first parents' sin, we have now inherited this sinful nature that left our own prone to wander from God. So as much as I love my kids, I know they're sinners just like you and me. They're not perfect. But one thing I really appreciate is that when they will come to me with confession, I saw this particularly with John when he was a preschooler, he would, he would come to me at a very early age and he would say, Dad, I did something really bad and I gotta tell you. I said, okay, John, what was it? What did you do that was so bad? And he said, I took two cookies rather than one. I said, John, that's okay, buddy. Thanks for telling me. I'm so glad you, you'd come on. Hey, it's next time, let's just take one, okay? And I could offer forgiveness and I could offer grace. But nowadays, as my children get older, I find that I have to, well, I have to come to them. I have to kind of force their hand. I have to, have to catch them red-handed sometimes. And I know that, well, as a parent, I much more appreciate it when my children come to me with an innocence, an open confession, and tell me before I even know what they've done, which is wrong. I believe our Heavenly Father wants us to come to Him. He doesn't want us to wait until He has to send Nathan into our lives to convict us of our sin. He wants us to come to Him with a broken and contrite, childlike heart. Say, Lord, I've sinned. 
I didn't do what I was supposed to do. In your steadfast love, O Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And as we experience God's forgiveness, as we experience God's grace, as we experience the unconditional sacrificial love by knowing that we are forgiven in Christ, then we will be able to forgive others. We will be able to love others well with the same unconditional love that we have first received from God. Yes, I believe confession is good for our soul because it strengthens our relationship with God. And ultimately, it's good for our relationships with others. As we confess our sins to God, we experience his grace, and then we can be an instrument of grace to others by forgiving them the same way that God has forgiven us. So may we take the time, this season of Lent, these 40 days, to confess our sins every day to God, to begin our day in confession, saying, Lord, forgive me for for not doing what I should have done. Lord, reveal to me the sins in my life, the things that I need to change, so that I might better reflect your love. As we experience God's grace, as we experience his forgiveness, and as King David says in verse 13, then we will be able to teach transgressors his ways. We will be able to tell others the good news of God's forgiveness. We will be able to be an instrument of grace and forgiveness to others. And sinners will turn to him. Thanks be to God for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who while on the cross in the Gospel of John said it is finished. Our sins have been atoned for. May we come to God in confession today so that we might once again experience his grace, love, and forgiveness. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you're the God who loves us, who wants to hear from us, who like a father loves it when his children come to him in open confession with contrite hearts and broken spirits and say, Lord, we have, we have sinned. We said a harsh word to one of the members of your creation. We didn't always love. We didn't always forgive. We've had selfish thoughts rather than loving thoughts. Oh God, thank you for your forgiveness and grace. Help us to be people of forgiveness and grace. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen. In response to God's word, I would encourage you to stand and join me in affirming our faith using question number 18 of the shorter catechism that helps explain the doctrine of original sin and where our sinful, selfish nature comes from. I'll ask the question if you can answer it with me. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. You may be seated. On Ash Wednesday, we have a thing called the Litany of Penitence. It's an opportunity for us as a community to come together to confess our sins, or communally to say, you know, we haven't done what we need to do. So Lord, I, I would invite you to join me in the Litany of Penitence. Um, I'll say the words, and then if you could respond. We have not loved you, O God, with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We confess to you, O God, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience in our lives. We confess to you, O God, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience in our lives. 
our self-indulgent appetites and ways and our exploitation of others. Our anger at our own frustration and our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves. Our negligence in prayer and worship and our failure to commend the faith that is in us. Gracious and loving God, just as you reminded our first father, Adam, that he is dust and to dust he shall return, we humbly put on these ashes in all humility and confessing our sins and seeking repentance, Lord, seeking to turn from our wicked ways. We are reminded of our brokenness, of our mortality, of our need for your grace and our need for your love. May these ashes be a symbol and a sign to all of us of our sin and our need to confess and our need to repent. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Men and women will come from north and south and east and west to sit at table in the kingdom of God. This is not simply a Presbyterian table, it's the Lord's table. And our Savior invites all those who trust in him to share the feast which he has prepared. For on the night that our Lord and Savior was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant poured in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as the apostle Paul reminds us, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming again. The gifts of God for the people of God. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Gracious and loving God, it is a right and good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, maker of heaven and earth. As we come to this table, Lord, we're reminded of your unconditional sacrificial love. We pray, O Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you might use these elements of bread and juice and ashes to draw us ever closer into your presence, to experience your grace anew, to be reminded and nourished by your love so that we might better reflect your love to a hurting world. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.